All right, we are lit, good sir. What up, what up, what up? Welcome back to another episode of Cultivated Ignorance. I am Will, the host. I'm like the favorite host. He is Who's not. He's, he's he is not. This week, we got a... Shut up. <laughs> this week, we got a dope show lined up for y'all. We have another amazing guest, because we are doing great on these guest runs. Listen, we on a roll out here. <laughs> uh, this week, we are joined by the lovely, talented, intelligent, beautiful, Miss Dr. Sheena Mason. How you doing? I'm awesome. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well. Good. I'm glad to be here with you guys. Yeah. Glad to have you. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the theory of racelessness. Yeah. This uh, it's, it's so cool because it, this came up from another topic or another past show we had. Yeah. And I think Mike kind of asked me the question, where would you be without your blackness? And, I, mean, that a and, I, and I just didn't have an answer. <laughs> I was like, it's so much a part of me. Um, yeah. But yeah, so you are smarter than I about racism. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to be talking okay. to you. Um, she is the author of Decolonizing America's Racialist Imagination. Um, so she, she's just smart and, she, and she's a doctor. So <laughs> it's more than I've ever done. Um, not not just uh not just from anywhere though from the howard university gonna boom. throw that out there for all the hbcu folks do we have like explosion emojis or something that we could put on the screen in post production <laughs> <laughs> okay not those right. okay the the wink and the gun mic well boom i got the celebration party hat thing on my joint <laughs> hope they can see it all right um so yeah man we're gonna be we're just gonna be chopping it up learning more about racelessness and kind of where we gonna be after it all Ooh, after it all falls apart <laughs> when the race war starts what side would you be on <laughs> that's what people would you oh real quick how was y'all thanksgiving listen we just talked about uh mine before the show i can't say everything i did but this shit was lit i'm just gonna say that go ahead was go like, ahead nah, talk man. about you living illegal in south night. carolina <laughs> I had a nice Christian Thanksgiving, even though I'm not Christian, just <laughs> back in all Sunday clothes and sophisticated eating. And there was no drinking, absolutely no drinking. There was absolutely no drugs involved. Um, everybody was nice and legal and it was fantastic. How about y'all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so my Thanksgiving was awesome. I have two-year-old triplets um, and they're finally at an age where they can like really enjoy what's happening. So yeah, no complaints here. It was awesome. Or mine was lovely as well. No complaints. Uh, I got to hang out with family and another family that we're real close with. And the food, this might be the best food I've had in like the past five Thanksgiving. I said the same thing about my food. Like this food slapped on another level. I got three places waiting after this. <laughs> yeah, so Thanksgiving was chill 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 Absolutely. all right so can you tell us a little bit about yourself dr sheena mason hmm. <laughs> 
I'm, I'm debating, do I want to give the, you know, CV resume version or, <laughs> um, yeah, so I grew up in small town, New York. Um, I had a very tumultuous and traumatic childhood. Uh, my biological parents were people who had a lot of children. Two of my brothers died under suspicious circumstances in their care. And the state of New York actually took me and my other biological sisters away from them. And I was adopted, but then the irony is that my adoptive mother severely abused me. So I turned to reading and really school, music, sports as my safe havens and as my liberation from the trauma that I was living on a regular basis. I mean, the abuse was so bad that I literally thought my own mother was going to kill me. I didn't think I was gonna to live to see 16. Mm. Um, but it's funny because the way that I turned to literature for liberation and to escape from my reality ends up being the reason why I am who I am today, despite the, the fact that I went through those challenges. Um, it's been a long road. I ended up having to drop out of high school when I was 17, I was sleeping on park benches. I was an honor student. I was taking college courses. I was in varsity sports. I sh it should have been the best year of my life, but I would have rather been homeless than stay in that house. Thanks. So I left. And as a result of that, I, ha I did have to drop out of high school. Um, fast forward, I end up you know, finishing high school with, with high honors. I went to undergrad. I was a student commencement speaker. Um, I wish my story kept improving from there, but I was homeless again um, in East New York, Brooklyn, in Canarsie, Brooklyn, Jamaica, Queens, like you name it, was homeless for, I just, the, the instability of my childhood carried with me, even though I was professionally and academically sound. Mm -hmm. um, and, but again, it's like all of the things that I went through, all of those hardships made me the force to be reckoned with that I am today. So I don't wish those experiences on anyone else, but at the same time, I recognize how they were a gift to me in a way because it's made me who I am today. You know, I have my doctorate. I got my MBA before that. I've done Teach for America. I worked in corporate America. I had a team of just under 100 employees at 24-Hour Fitness. I lived in five different states working for them. I've traveled broadly the world, you know. Um, I say all that to say that I'm, I'm complex, just like everyone else. And don't let the doctor fool you. <laughs> the doctor in front of my name fool you because people like to make all kinds of presumptions about the things I've experienced or haven't experienced when the reality is I have a testimony and a story to tell. That's incredible. I just want to say real quick, um, I'm so glad that you're still here and not just, you know, here on the podcast, but just here on earth in general. Um, that is incredible. I'm sorry you went through all those things, but it's so incredible how far you come and that you're still fighting. You're still out here. And you made a whole theory out here. So like, just, <laughs> that's just, dope. I just wanted to say that real quick. Thank you, Mike. And, and that's what inspires my work too, is like, I'm really trying to be the positive change in the world and to be the type of person that I needed in my life and deserved in my, to have in my life as a child. Like I'm trying to be that 
Um, and I'm trying to be part of solution making as opposed to upholding the sorts of injustices that come to mind when we think about racism. That's my primary motivation. And I'm motivated because of all of the things I went through, including explicit racism. Mm. What's up? Um, so can you, for, for the uninitiated, can you tell everybody what the theory of racelessness is? So there are six philosophies of race that that are seldom taught and um, there are a few that are very misunderstood. In American society, we, we are taught to hold two particular philosophies, even without having a name for it. Most people in the United States fall into these categories. Um, and theory of racelessness speaks to two alternative philosophies of race that can actually get us toward liberation as opposed to the default uh, traditional philosophies of race that are packaged as liberal or progressive, but actually to the detriment of our society. So the philosophies of race that we're taught to embrace really starting from very young ages onward include something called naturalism, which is the belief that race is biological, right? If people start talking about skin color or their parents or their grandparents, their ancestry, all of those things are naturalist ways of viewing race. The second category, which is the most common is something called constructionism. Some people talk about gender in the terms of, of it being social construction. The same applies to race. People might concede, okay, it's not real biologically, but it's rendered real in ways that have meaning in the United States, right? I'm a skeptic, which is the last category that speaks to what a person thinks race is. Racelessness as a skeptic to me is the natural state of all human beings. It is saying that race is not biological and it's not a social construction what people point to and they say that's race or that's racial, they're pointing to racism camouflaging itself as race, or they're pointing to culture or ethnicity, which are both real and tangible, but not race or racial, right? There's a difference. In American society, we conflate all of the things with race. So I'm a skeptic and as a skeptic, I help people come to recognize the non-existence of race, the truly non-existence of it. Um, and then there are three categories that speak to what a person thinks should be done with race. The default position in the states tends to be something called reconstructionism. All of the big names, Ibram X. Kendi, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Robin DiAngelo, there are Frederick Douglass. I mean, we could go on down the line for over a century. The, they are actively trying to reconstruct what it is to be racialized, especially racialized as Black in the United States. So when I think of hashtags like uh, Black excellence or Black boy magic or, or um, Black is beautiful, that those are reconstructionist efforts. Uh, the next position would be conservationism, which is what it sounds, that we should keep race. Those people tend to be naturalists. And then my position in the last category of uh, philosophies of race is something called eliminativism. Eliminativists are often skeptics, but can also be constructionists like my mentor at Howard University. And ultimately the argument is for whatever variety of reasons, the concept of race should be eliminated. 
as a skeptic, since I recognize that what's called race is often racism hiding itself, and I view racism as creating race, which is why reconstructionist efforts haven't gotten us across the finish line, because we can't reconstruct racism. We need to eliminate it. I'm an eliminativist. I argue that to undo racism, we have to undo this unicorn that we call race. So racelessness cuts both ways, my skepticism and my eliminativism. So, so I guess, and I've seen your, I think you did a, I guess, an online essay with PowerPoint as well. I can't remember what it was exactly, but uh, essentially you believe race is racist. Is that correct? That racism is race. That racism is race. Okay. Right. They are the same. Okay. Right. Okay. So that's why at the outset, when you said my book title, the word racialist is a word I coined. It combines the word racial and racist to show the sameness. And when I write the word racism, I put the word race in there. So okay. it's literally racism. And so then my anti-racism becomes anti-race because it's the same thing. I got you. I got you. So how does this differ from like colorblindness and anti-racist, you know, teachings that you know, are, are just everywhere. So colorblindness depends on the existence of race. It says race exists. If we believe in race, if we believe in the category of race, then we're automatically predisposed to be racist because race is the hierarchy. Race is racism, right? So colorblindness says, see race, have your racist beliefs, right? But ignore it. Don't let it dictate how you treat somebody right theory of racelessness says the thing that that you are being encouraged to ignore by those folks who profess themselves to be colorblind doesn't exist <laughs> and and imagine yourself outside of the confines of racism as a raceless human being who are you are you, are you still the same person and imagine the person that you view as racialized as the sort of opposite of you, which in the States is gonna be black and white, right? Imagine that that person is raceless. And now let's take a look at racism, the problem of racism to analyze it and be more clear-eyed about what it is, what it isn't, uh, which is critical because right now we have an anti-racist movement, which is really teaching people to see racism everywhere. Why? Because we're teaching people to see race everywhere which is further evidence of my assertion that racism is race. If we see race everywhere, if we see something bad happening to a so-called black person, the presumption almost automatically, if a racialized white person is involved, is racism. This happens time and time again, right? The Kyle Rittenhouse verdict was evidence of us being trained to not see the logic, to just see racism everywhere, even when it's not, even when it's not there. And how detrimental is that? That's That to me, it, it, we call it anti-racism, but it's the exact opposite because who benefits from us seeing and imagining racism is everywhere in that way? The people at the top echelons of society, right? The average person, especially racialized black people are like hurt and heartbroken and traumatized over seeing racism everywhere. So it doesn't actually benefit us. So my flavor of anti-racism is actually helping people identify the root cause of a problem except it, it, and not the symptom, the symptom being race, 
we have to identify the root cause, which is racism, which created race in the ways that we think of it now. And now that we can do that, we can step outside of the boxes that society creates for us, that we create for ourselves. We can, we can stop internalizing the problem of racism because it does exist, just not in the ways we think it does. We can stop internalizing that. We can actually begin to heal and unify because then we're not demonizing people who are racialized as white, for example, while also saying we want we need them to be allies, but we're demonizing them for being white. The irony. And we're getting them to concede that we are basically like infants who just can't do anything for themselves in the world. My anti-racism brings all of that under interrogation and frees people from that way of thinking of themselves and other people. And in that way too, I'll say one last thing, it's vastly different from colorblindness, not just because of the fundamental and profound difference of race doesn't exist, but also, so there's nothing for you to ignore, right? But also because we do that, people who profess themselves to be colorblind but ignore the existence of racism are invited to critically analyze the problem of racism and acknowledge it without feeling like they're being blamed, right, for something that they don't have any control over. And and it's I've seen it happen time and again where the shift for them is important and matters because so long as we keep trying to pigeonhole people into the box of racism, of course the problem is going to continue to persist because we have, you know, what, like maybe half the population who doesn't want to be, you know, who doesn't want to be in the box. They just don't want to be in the box, understandably. So this helps people who aspire to be colorblind um, see the truth of racism, but it's not the typical anti-racism in the ways that I've described. And I know you have like criticisms for like people like Dr. Ibram Kendi, if I remember correctly. Um, <laughs> she's like, yeah. Um, so, I mean, do you see anything productive at all from somebody like him or like a Robin D'Angelo who I think offered, was it Right Fragility? I think she was the book she wrote. Uh, <laughs> go off, Dr. Mason, go off. Go ahead, do your thing. Um, you know, the really ironic part is I'm a professor at a place Ibram X. Kendi was a professor at before I got there. Cause I just, you know, I just graduated in May, 2021. I just started in August. He was at SUNY Onianta before me. Um, that's the kind of irony of, of all of this because he's a name that comes up often when I have conversations with people, but you know, he's also, interestingly, he's somebody that I was inspired by. His um, stamp from the beginning, I felt like was, really pushing the envelope toward a sort of eliminativist philosophy. And I actually coined my spelling of anti-race and anti-racism from reading that book, because I was like, he's telling you all of the things I'm saying in well, like 800 pages, a lot of pages. He's telling you all of the things I'm saying and giving you so much evidence for what I'm saying as being truth, that racism is race. But then he doubled down with how to be an anti-racist and sort of went in the opposite direction. Um, and it's like this weird, weird quagmire. It's like the matrix almost, right? Like he's very well-intended. I think many people are well-intended, more people than not, who are doing this work. I think they're well-intended. They don't strike me as being disingenuous. 
but when you have you know influential people like Kendi or D'Angelo telling people how to think about race and how to think of themselves as racialized people to examine the problem of racism it's not lost on me that we're then teaching people to be racist and to operate within the category of racism so you can't have it both ways you can't you can't insist that race is a made-up thing but then step into a room and and decide who's black and who's white and who's asian and you know what i'm saying like if race is a is a figment of our imaginations um and this is where constructionists tend to fall short for me then the one drop rule you know that was literally created to keep certain people enslaved you know um the the being able to look at a person's phenotype and deciding or knowing that their race and then deciding what that means about them all of those things are not just ironic but in some ways, in many ways, inadvertently upholding the true problem of racism, because you're literally teaching people to be racist and then trying to teach them how to step outside of their racism. Like it's, it's, it's no wonder we haven't made the progress one might hope or expect over a very long period of time. And it's really no wonder that we see the really vast, you know, social problems and cultural problems that are dividing American society right now around CRT and all this other stuff, wokeness, right? These things are happening not because the people who are speaking out against these practices are racist, as the media would have us believe, but because what they're saying, that teaching race in these ways is teaching racism, is true. Like, it's accurate. It's accurate. So I, truth be told, I, I don't, I have a hard time seeing the benefits of, you know, books like that getting popular and mainstream. Now we have a sort of faux liberal force taking over all the institutions. You have institutions doing DEI initiatives, diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives with the sole purpose of protecting themselves against lawsuits. So it's not because they wanna solve any societal ills, but because they just wanna protect themselves. And in doing that, they're creating worse workplaces and encouraging racialized black people, for example, to see microaggressions everywhere. And <laughs> I'm like, who is it, how, who, how sway? Like how, is, how are people really convinced that this is the path toward liberation? How? See, ooh, this is a, this is a good conversation because that's exactly what I'd be saying. I'd be like, all this stuff. Okay, what is the thin line between? Okay, we got to get liberated, liberated somehow. It's got to be. It might be baby steps. So, like, I talk to Will about this all the time. Is the whole, for example, the corp, you know, the giant corporation that's doing DEI initiatives to cover their ass, is that just like a stepping stone towards where we need to be? That's what I think. Like people like try to tell me and I'm trying to see it and I think they're right but I don't know <laughs> um I think I think the inevitable progression of this stuff is going to be toward something like theory of racistness that's what I think is inevitable because of the discord that the current practices are causing I think it's this is going to be there's going to be a backlash I, it's already begun but there's going to be an increased backlash against employers who are doing these practices and forcing these things or against schools who are forcing kids into affinity groups and things like that i think there's going to be a backlash 
I also think that the political backlash, you know, if you kept up with um, the election that happened in Virginia and the, the upset, they turned that state from blue to red for the first time in, I don't know, like over a decade. And it was largely over the CRT anti-racism stuff. I think the political backlash will also be a motivator for people to start to turn the tide and to actually, because it's going to be impacting their bottom line in a lot of ways, you know, if you, if you talk about workplace culture and if the culture that you're supposed to be creating with the DEI or the anti-racist stuff ends up being the opposite of the intended impact, um, that's going to impact your bottom line because you're not going to be able to retain employees. You're, pro you're probably definitely going to get lawsuits. You're going to have racialized white people throwing lawsuits left and right. I've seen it in the media already. Um, and it's just going to be a shit show. So I think that the inevitable progression of this is going to be something along these lines, but I also, and maybe that was necessary. Maybe that, that coming to a head was like required for people to be more open to something like theory, that could very well be true. Um, but I'm not like applauding or clapping my hands or patting myself on the back because, you know, in some ways, this is all a sort of what if and <laughs> movements need money, you know, that's how these other movements became so ingrained into our uh, society so quickly. And, you know, there's a, there's a real possibility that people will just ignore me or forget about me after a couple months and, and nothing changes, right? And then now my children have to grow up in a society where they're put in this box. Racism is still going to be um, detrimental to them because there's nothing positive about being racialized and the quagmire continues. So, so do you... I guess, do you currently identify as anything? No, I don't. You, do, you choose not to. So do you involve yourself in uh, Black empowerment movements? Uh, any hashtags? Do you believe in stuff like that whatsoever? It's not that I don't believe in the stuff. It's that I refuse to be a hypocrite because if I'm nothing else, I'm not a hypocrite. And if I'm over here showing how pe well-intended people are upholding the problem, I'm not going to be also upholding the problem. So I, but it was a, it was a journey for me, right? Like at first, when my brain started showing me this stuff after doing an extensive amount of historical and literary analysis, I was in my advisor's office crying because I was like, I'm a black woman. Like, I don't want to not be a black woman. I, I literally wept. <laughs> okay. I fought my own ideas. I was like, and I didn't want to be that black woman. Like I didn't want to be that person because at the time, at the earliest iterations of my now understandings, all I was seeing was, oh, countless African-American writers were showing through their literature that the undoing of race was, would result in the undoing of racism that was the like minimum amount of words that I could put it very succinct, succinctly what I was seeing. So then I was like undoing race, undo racism. I don't want to not be black. It was a whole thing. I, it took me years of continuing to think, you know, my mentor, bless her heart. She was like, Sheena, you don't have to be a martyr. Like you don't have to just not be black today. 
just because you're seeing this, like just explore your ideas, um, share them right as publicly as you can and just see where the path takes you. But you don't have to be the one today that does this. And I wasn't the one today that did it. I, I kept it. I also recognized that I was a constructionist eliminativist. So working in the category wasn't actually problematic for me. And when I met my mentor, Jacoby Carter, he taught me all I know about philosophies of race. And he was a social con eliminate, a constructionist eliminativist. So I identified and had language for that. I was like, oh, okay. And he was like, you're not crazy. I was like, that's awesome. That's great. Uh, <laughs> it's like blackness has practical utility, right? As it operates in society, in American society, it has practical utility, but there's nothing positive about being racialized, period, full stop. And I was like, okay. And he said, you can work within a category while seeking its destruction. And I said, okay. So I took the constructionist eliminativist approach. And so my language didn't uh, particularly change. Um, but then about a year ago, I shifted from constructionism to skepticism. Before the shift happened, I can admit that I really didn't understand what skepticism was or what the difference between skepticism and constructionism was. But once it happened in my brain and once I recognized like, oh, I'm holding on to this because I'm assigning everything I love about myself to <laughs> my blackness. Yeah. Right? I'm assigning everything I love myself to my blackness, but everything I love about myself has nothing to do with my race. It doesn't, it's not racial. It might be, and and like the the hurt that I went through as a kid and stuff, it had nothing to do with my race. My race didn't determine uh, what happened to me and my race didn't determine how I participated in culture. It wasn't racial. So then that forced me to recognize, okay, I'm conflating, I'm doing what most people do. I'm conflating race, ethnicity, and culture. Check. And so in letting go of my blackness, in letting go of my race, the only thing I'm letting go of is racism. Because again, it's the same thing. All of the glory that is Sheena Mason remains. The only thing that changes is I'm literally liberated from racialist ideology and the detrimental impact that it has on too many of our psyches and too many of our movements. And that was, that was it for me. I was, there was no turning back. And you know, I was called, we moved to a new state because of my professorship and I was calling and setting doctor's appointments for my kids. And they were like, and what is so-and-so's race? And I was like, um, we don't, um, we don't choose one or we don't answer their whatever. I said something like, no. <laughs> and then the lady was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I could tell she was so confused. She's like, well, they're going to keep asking you when you come in with the kids and I said, okay, and they can ask, but we don't identify that with that. Um, so I literally shifted from not being able to let go of it to recognizing that the letting go was letting go of the violence, which is only going to be beneficial for me. Um, and so I don't, I, that means like I, there are times where I want to use particular hashtags because I know it'll get attention because that's why I use hashtags, right? But I can't, the, the skeptic in me, I can't, I, I can't allow myself to actually do it. So I've shifted, but that it was a journey. This is where I got so many questions and I feel like you get, I'm sure you would get so much pushback 
um, when you just detailed everything you've been through and how you believe that it had nothing to do with your race, but just to do with your specific circumstance, what do you say? Because this is what I struggle with too. What do you say to people who would say that you know you being seen as black would make you to be more susceptible to those circumstances because of how race works in society, um, because how people who are racialized as black are treated disproportionately in, in you know in relation to white people or people of color. How do you kind of, I don't say, I guess in a way, like justify saying like, I released this from me, so therefore I'm liberated from it. When people would say like, you can't be liberated from blackness because society sees you as black. Like, therefore making you susceptible to the black experiences, quote unquote. Yeah, because the whole idea of black experiences, what people are actually saying, my friends call me the race translator. People are, are actually saying when they say something like that is like the experience of living in a racist society. More often than not, when you hear the Black experience, people are speaking to that particular experience, right? But you can put all, you know, 40 plus million racialized Black people in the United States together, and there's not going to be a consensus of what the Black experience is. There's not going to be a consensus on what racism is or how it's impacted them if they've all experienced racism, even with class taken out of the equation. There's not going to be a consensus. There has never, literally never in the history of the country been a consensus. So that's part of the problem of racialist ideology is it homogenizes and washes over actual differences. And that's also how racism continues to manifest because then so-called black people are often told how to think, what to think. If they think for themselves, they're accused of being white supremacists, speaking white ideas, all this nonsensical stuff. And it's like, bruh, that's literally racist. Like that's a racist way to view black people. So for people, for any, anyone who might suggest that my experiences were because I'm black, I would put it this way. First of all, the child abuse, everything I experienced had nothing to do with the fact that I was racialized as black. So there's that. But also part of the problem of this race racism evasion is that we continue to talk about the problem of racism in the language of race to where people will be convinced. They will say it till they're blue in the face that when they're talking about race, they're talking about racism because and that's also my evidence for how it's the same thing, right? If you're talking about race and you feel like you're talking about the problem of racism, then that's evidence it's the same thing. But because we're not talking about it in the actual language of racism, like using the word racism, and we're talking about it in the language of race, we naturalize the existence of race. And we make ourselves the problem. Breonna Taylor was killed because she's Black. Young Sheena Mason was assaulted, called pubic hair, and spit on when she was a child because she's Black. So my Blackness then is dictating how you treat me. Does anybody else see a problem with that? Because I do. There's a difference between pointing to a problem and internalizing it and making yourself the problem and speaking it in a language that makes you the problem. And the book Racecraft, The Soul of Inequality in American Life, Barbara and Karen Fields say a sentence like, the Black Southerners were segregated because of their skin color. To American ears, they say, this sentence sounds perfectly natural. 
but notice that the racist actions of the white Southerners who were doing the segregating are left completely out of that formulation so that the cause of the races, racism becomes the skin color of the black people. Think about this. This is like, it's not a matter of just rhetoric or semantics, how we, the language we use informs and inspires how we think about a problem, which then will inform how we solve a problem. If we continue to talk about the problem and we're making ourselves the problem, there's a profound difference there. So even if the case could be made that because society does a thing to me, that's why I've experienced certain things and that's why I haven't experienced other things. Okay, but I as an individual also exist in addition and as part of that society. So why am I giving my individual power away by hyper-focusing on the community at large? That's a problem. The left focuses on the society and the right focuses on the individual when both of those things exist. And I have the power, liberation starts here, and I have the power of that, not anybody else outside of me, right? So I can liberate myself from this way of thinking, still recognize the problem, but make, not make myself the cause. I was just talking to a former student at Howard, one of my former students from Howard, earlier today, she's in Italy doing study abroad and you know she's going through some things. So she remembered that I was like kind and passionate. So she reached out to me. So I had a Zoom meeting with her and I was telling her like, you're making yourself the cause of other people's bad behavior. And while they're probably not thinking twice about it, you're over here like feeling really hurt and in pain and as if you don't belong anywhere you go because of how you show up in the world. That is not liberation. That's not liberation. I think, oh man, because um, I see what you're saying. I think it's the tricky part is like, yeah, I can't let society define who I am, who, what liberation looks like for me. I can't let society use this creation called blackness to marginalize me. But at the same time, I have to resist the life that I'm more susceptible to because of this label given to me. So it's like, I have to fight while saying like, y'all not gonna do this to black people, but at the same time saying like, blackness is a complete, you know, figment, not figment, but like a complete fabrication of, you know, of the lead. It's, it's very hard to like fight for yourself when you're, when you're, our bodies are politicized from the moment we get out of the womb, we're politicized by the, by the world. We're really, if you're talking about the states, by the, the country, as soon as we come out of the womb, and it's very hard for you to separate yourself from that when you have to live in society, and the society sees you in a certain way. I hope I'm making sense right now. It's like I yes, get what you're but, saying, but it's, like, it's hard to resist that when you, without acknowledging the problem at the same time. But Mike, what life are you more likely to live because you're black? What do you mean? Like, I guess. What do, you, what do you mean exactly? Like, what about more susceptible like, things you're saying? Right. I guess going to statistics or whatever, like, I guess more susceptible to certain types of violence, um, certain types of poverty. Um, doesn't mean that anybody racialized as white wouldn't, you know, wouldn't experience any of that, but it would be very specific to the, I guess, the social construct of race that I'm assigned to versus a white guy named Todd down the street. Like, I'm susceptible to a special type of violence, I would say. In the world what, what kind of um 
violence are you more susceptible to? That was the first example you gave. I would say, so the violence that, that, that Blackness was created for in the first place, I guess I would say. Um, blackness was created as a means to justify um, if at any time, and this is just me speaking from Afro-pessimists I've talked to, or just like reading things, reading books I've read. Uh, it's like, uh, because blackness is, was created to be synonymous, synonymous with slaveness, I guess at any given point in time, um, my personal autonomy could be taken from me in the name of that slaveness, not having any humanity, not, not being seen with any humanity in the world. Even though I am a human, even though I know I'm human, even though I deserve, I know I deserve human rights. With the label of blackness being put on me, uh, society society would say like I, that could be taken away at any given time, in in relation to whiteness. Try to best explain this in a way that makes. I hope is this making sense so far? What I'm trying to explain about just the label put on me versus somebody the label that's put on somebody who's deemed white. Here's the thing, right? I, I like, I think I gather what you mean um, because that, that way of thinking is common. So I hear it often enough and I myself thought it once upon a time. Uh -huh. um, but I've recently come to discover that I've, I, that I've been wrong about certain things, right? Like, for example, so when I think of, when I used to think of systemic racism, I would think first and foremost about uh, racialized black people being disproportionately impoverished, right? Like that would be at the top of my concerns list. Um, because linked, often linked to socioeconomics, you have something called education. And we know that there's something called the achievement gap, the which is also known as the opportunity gap. So all of these things are interrelated. So though, like I work with organizations in the Mississippi Delta, which are some of the more impoverished um, areas really feeling still the lingering effects of segregation. And it impacts it. I feel like it impacts everything there. Um, but yet, <laughs> if we look at the statistics, we come to find out that something like 25 to 30% of racialized black people in the states are live below the poverty line. Okay, so that's not the 50 or 60% that most people think that it is in their minds, right? We're not all poor. We're not even, not even the majority of us are poor. Now, we are a smaller part of the population. So then the argument becomes, okay, but we're disproportionately poor. Okay, I'll take that. But then the question comes back around to, is it racism then though? Because if the vast majority of us live above the poverty line and of, of people below the poverty line, we comprise something like 20.1% of um, racialized, of 20.1% of poor people are racialized black, 25 indigenous, 10 Asian, 10 white, and then it's like a mixed bag. So I, when we, when I think of those numbers, something, it's kind of like an, an alarm bell going off for me of like, okay, huh, <laughs> maybe the conclusions I was drawing because it sounded right and it sounded just, it sounded like an accurate reflection of our society. Maybe something is off. 
So then I do more analysis. I, I do more research because the left and the right both talk about racialized black people as if we're just inherently violent, but they'll say it's for different reasons, right? They'll say, the left will say it's the system makes us violent because it makes us poor, which I, I think I've already discounted. Even if it's a disproportionate number of us, we're not, not even the majority of us are poor. So there's that. But the right will say, it's not the system. It's the inferior culture that, that, that keeps black people poor, poor and violent. 2.5% of racialized black people commit violent crimes. 2.5%. But you know what the media does? They say, oh, black people represent 50% of murder victims and commit uh, violent crimes six, was it eight or six times more than white people. But you know what they're not saying? What the, the number for white people is, is 0.25. So six times that is like 2.5. So the beat, like, but I would have never been encouraged to look it up until somebody, I just happened to be talking with somebody and it, and it came up and then I went and researched it myself to make sure they weren't deceiving me because like, you can't trust anyone these days. Um, That's facts. Uh, so I looked it up myself and I was like, I was kind of shocked because the media makes it seem like the majority of us are poor and we're violent and it doesn't stop there. Somebody looked me in my eyeballs and told me recently that I have to be afraid for my life when I walk outside getting shot by a cop i said okay is that true and i <laughs> i could tell i was the first person who asked this person that is that true um it's not true right like if we look at those numbers i think that the highest it's been it's always been between like 250 260 a year of racialized black people shot by cops that doesn't speak to how many people got shot and died but 250 shot Year to date, when I looked a couple of weeks ago, it was 111. So we're talking about, we represent over 40 million people in American society. You're talking about less than one person a day get shot by cops. And it's not, you know, outrageous compared to the numbers for the other populations. It's, you know, and we could say, oh, well, it's disproportionate because we're a small part of the population. So we shouldn't be getting shot nearly as many times as the racialized white officers. But that, those statistics tell us nothing about which of the shootings were justified because just because you get shot by a cop doesn't make it unjustified, right? Um, it doesn't tell us any of the context. But then you have people like LeBron James saying that we get murdered and hunted in the streets. Where, where? Where is that happening? And who does it benefit for us to think about ourselves in our own country, a country that we built? I'm ADOS. My ancestors helped build this country. But who benefits from me thinking that I'm a second class citizen, that racism is omnipresent, that it impacts and, and determines my outcomes in life, that I pass the trauma on to my children because I think I'm doing them a service, but I'm doing them a disservice based on reality. And who benefits from that? Because it, it's not us. <laughs> While I agree nobody benefits from it, especially us, it's hard for me to believe that despite all the statistics, um, f first, that everything is reported accurately. And secondly, that us only being removed, you know, less than, what is it, 70, 80 years now from, or 60 years now from segregation, and the Voter Rights Act, it, it's, 
it's very hard for me to believe that things do not happen to us disproportionately since we are so shortly removed from that. Um, you know, I, I understand the statistics. It's hard to argue against statistics, if I'm being very honest. But um, but the disparity doesn't always mean racism is my point. Just because there's a disparity, just because there's something disproportionate happening, it doesn't mean it's racism. But by indiscriminately labeling everything racism, that's also part of how we uphold the problems that actually ill us, right? Because you have these people, usually in academia, talking about defund the police, but then you go to the actual communities where that's going to impact, which are largely black and brown populations, right? And they don't want the police to be defunded. You know, so you have all these people like the Kennedys of the world, D'Angelo's of the world, making these decisions and doing things because it sounds right. And again, doing things to the detriment of the same communities we say that we want to help. That's a problem. And that should be a problem for all of us. And it was hard for me. It's still admittedly hard for me to fully wrap my head around the full reality of like what is racism and what is not racism because again i came even this far in my journey within the last couple of weeks and i've just been it's like the smoke cleared and i was like wow this is my analysis and my conclusions about racism hiding itself as race is like completely spot on and part of the problem that it helps create is the fact that we're not even clear-eyed about what the problems are anymore in society we have made tremendous progress since the Civil Rights Act, but we we're definitely not perfect. But I think that the imperfections that persist and exist are largely class based. And if we can come to acknowledge the fact that racialized black people or racialized brown people are not the majority, you know, the majority of us are not living below the poverty line. I think that means that we have to be more clear eyed about the solution making that we do, because then it's not racism. It started out as that. But there's it, something else that came across my table desk recently is like Bob Woodson, um, the founder of the Woodson Center and a civil rights activist. He was saying that if we look historically at the data, crime was less even po like right after emancipation up until 90s 1990s crime was less education was like i don't know higher probably um and uh families were intact more people were married than not with children all of that and he says starting in the 1990s all of a sudden that starts to dismantle and now we've regressed a little bit and his position is that it's because it's largely cultural and it's, it's, it's poor people that we should be talking about, which embodies all poor people, right? Not just so-called black poor people, but all poor people. Um, but because we're so hyper-focused and obsessed with race, we miss opportunities to actually have a positive impact on those societies, on those communities. I want to say this, and unfortunately, we just started to run low on time because um, I really love this discussion. And I would really, really love if we could get you back on when we have like, if we can get like more time so I can read up on those statistics and everything. Because there are some things like you're saying that I, I do straight up just disagree with. 
But as a whole, I do feel where you're coming from, a thousand percent. I definitely feel you. And I think this all speaks to how, because of how race has affected our lives, like this is why we're so obsessed with it. It's because all these things, all, all these things about how we're like obsessed with it and how we interact with it and how we seek to destroy it, it's not our fault. It's, this is all things are just put on us, uh, as you mentioned earlier, from the elite class of people. Like these are things that were put on to us and we were socialized to be this that's like inherently a part of us. And that's why we just consumed that, in my opinion. And so it's very hard to not only get the education on that, because that's not taught in schools. That's not um, that's not shared amongst family members. So not only learn about that, but also like get that out of your brain and then think differently, whether it's somebody would think like you or someone like me. That is incredibly hard. And a lot of people just don't have the energy or time or the resources to do that. And it just speaks to like the divisiveness that's happening and where it comes from. So I definitely want to get you back on the show because, and I would love to get you with some other guests. I think you would have some good dialogue as well with this. Um, we definitely got to get you back. Um, I definitely wanted to ask you at least one more question before we left. Um, which one was it? I wanted to say, if you think that, you know, ending racism means the end of race, um, does that also mean ending blackness? And is that something, number one, is that something most black people even want to do? Well, most black people want to get rid of blackness. I'm sorry, get rid of racism if it meant get rid of blackness. Will's already decided. He's made up his mind. <laughs> and two, like, what does a world without blackness even look like? It's, it, it's so interesting to me because uh, people often hear that I'm talking about like the annihilation of an entire people or something like that when I, yeah. <laughs> I talk about which doesn't make in some ways it makes logical sense in other ways it's so illogical to me um, because as a skeptic if blackness doesn't exist but people just imagine it does then that then the only thing that changes is the people's recognition willing recognition of um, of who they are and who they're not and with that would with that recognition would come a proliferated understanding of both ethnicity and culture which can only be beneficial especially in a country that really privileges i think ethnic ethnic and cultural roots um in a way that would dismantle the faux black unity that a lot of americans think exists but doesn't it gets completely traumatized when you start to talking to people from Nigeria or Zimbabwe or or British Nigerians Nigeria uh when you or Jamaica when you start talking to people from around the globe about blackness and what it is to them you come to learn just how contrived the idea of blackness is in American society which I think we should, we can learn from that. We can learn from the fact that it's not the same everywhere and that it doesn't mean what it means anywhere else, which means that the word blackness idea of it, I think will continue to exist globally uh, because in places like Jamaica is primarily a descriptor in places like Nigeria is primarily a descriptor. It's like, of course I'm black, look at me, I'm black. Right, but it doesn't mean anything else beyond that. And they don't tend to feel a solidarity with people around the world who look just because they look alike. That's not how it works everywhere. So I think I think a proliferated understanding of like what blackness is or what it can be or what it has been in other spaces 
would be helpful in helping people recognize that the only thing I'm talking about dismantling is racism. And when I think of blackness, and I've said earlier, like all of the things that I assigned to my blackness were all of the my favorite things about myself. Um, those things aren't erased just because I'm not calling myself black, which is why I find it, you know, somewhat illogical for people to leap to the conclusion that I'm like, I'm taking something from them. All that is being removed is literally the racism. And the last thing I'll say is more people than not are compelled by theory of racistness in the work I do. Um, I'm talking out of hundreds and hundreds of students. I'm talking out of my corporate clients, not other nonprofits, other people doing this work, my podcasts. People are compelled to do the personal and, and I think spiritual work of disconnecting race from ethnicity, from culture and liberating themselves from viewing themselves in these ways because they recognize that they're commit if they're truly committed to anti-racism, this is necessary. And maybe they didn't have the exact language to say it before, but they have the language and the knowledge now and they are indebted and feel extremely grateful for having the, the education. And that is, you know, people racialize in all types of ways. Um, so, but the people who aren't compelled, like William, you know, well, not compelled, that's cool because guess what doesn't have to happen? We don't need a statistical majority of people to get on board with this line of thinking for the outcome to be what we did, what we all actually desire. Yeah. We don't need the statistical majority. We just need, we just need the statistical majority. We don't need 100% of people to, to agree. That's true. That's facts. That's and I'm true. down for a part two. We should definitely do that. I would love that. Yo, I would love that. Cause I feel like, yeah, you definitely are checking the table. We love people checking the table and stuff. Um, I'm interested. I'm definitely interested in hearing like the majority of responses you get from other black people and stuff, but yeah, we'll get you back on for sure. For sure. Find me on Twitter, Mike. I put a client testimony testimony of a blackity black man on there. A blacky right. black man. Blackity black man. Um, now raceless. I put now, his testimony on there. So. Now racist. Now <laughs> baptized in the racelessness. <laughs> That's dope, man. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, this Thank is a time you. where we kind of just uh, celebrate, you know, black women. Well racialized black women are doing their thing and everything um i know you don't identify as black your language mike say what oh i said fix your language i know i gotta i gotta check myself um i definitely wanted you to get this time though to just shout out anything you got coming on or coming up i know you have a book coming up do you want to talk about a little bit about the book and everything well i'll show you stuff. yeah um decolonizing the racialist imagination and interrogation and critique of anti-racist discourse I use literary studies as a case study for my position on anti-racism as I spell it. Oh, that, sorry, that scared I'm me, I'm sorry. Oh, and um, yeah, that book is gonna be released late spring. Um, a lot of evidence there where some people talk opinions, I have receipts. So look out for the book. Also find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, theory of racelessness and uh my podcast sheena mason you can search for me as sheena mason i'm happy to to converse there it is man there it is <laughs> thanks for sharing that of course of course then any final thoughts or anything would you got anything 
you, uh, you're going to start your racist, racist I, journey. I feel like everything great about me is still connected to my blackness. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I am, I'm curious, but I am very uh, fearful of what, of what, uh, of, of it. I'll say that. I understand. <laughs> no, um, but it's, it's a very interesting topic and it is something that I would like to jump on board with. I just don't think it's something, you know, like it's one of those things you're just not ready for. <laughs> I wasn't ready for it at first either, Will. So <laughs> I understand. I understand. Like getting the, the pool ready, like for the deep end. And Will's like, ah, I still got my floaties on. I don't, I don't. <laughs> but why do you say, why do you say it's something you would like to get on board with though? Like, cause are there some truths to what I'm saying that you're like, I agree with that, but I still don't want to let go. There, there are some truths. The main one being, uh me identifying as black or us identifying as black has no real benefit to us uh it it pretty much seems all downhill that's a reason well practical utility right practical utility but not a benefit and there is a difference right yeah Um, i I understand and as a parent of a child who uh i guess is racialized black or Mm -hmm. um i feel like i need to teach her things about walking through the world as black like I feel like those are necessary like you can't see that's the part where we're probably going that's what I, let's, that's what I was let's have a conversation <laughs> that's what I was struggling with though that's what I'm saying if the world sees you as a certain way like you can't not address that at the same time you ain't got to make it your whole identity that's what I'm struggling with most I'll say firsthand that's what I'm struggling with the most to be continued <laughs> I would love this part too, absolutely. But thank you so much for just taking the time out for joining us. Uh, it was a lot of that was it was everything I hoped it would be. I, I knew a debate would pop up sooner or later. It did. Definitely want to have. We're gonna invite you. We're gonna do a Joe Rogan style. Just do a five hour, just back and forth. It'll be a whole thing. You know, food, all the good stuff. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Absolutely. Well, thank I you appreciate so y'all. Absolutely. Thank you so much. much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. And we appreciate y'all for tuning in once again. Coast Red Ignorance. Y'all know how we do. Patreon.com slash Culture Better Ignorance. Remember, me and Will both have 10 kids each. So please donate as much money as you can so we can take care of them. And um, <laughs> yeah, we'll see y'all next time. Peace, peace.